You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I want to begin by just saying this, something that up until probably 20, 30, 40 years ago was sort of a given amongst people in our culture. It's this, that marriage is the foundation of society. Marriage, the relationship between a a man and a woman creating a family, is the foundation of society. It's the cornerstone upon which every culture in history has stood. It's the foundation of the family, it is the foundation of the church, it's the foundation of society. And if marriage crumbles, so too does the family. And when the family begins to crumble, it's not long before the society and ultimately the church begins to crumble as well. So strong marriages, healthy marriages, growing marriages are are, are critical to the well-being of the church and the well-being of society. But Satan, for about the last two generations, has been working hard to destroy the family. It all began back in the 60s with a sexual revolution. Do what feels good. Live live the way you want to live. And and he convinced us to redefine what morality really is all about. And then more recently, Satan has convinced us to redefine what family is, to redefine what marriage is. And as a result, the foundations of our culture are beginning to crumble. And I say that having thought a lot about it, but the foundations of our culture are beginning to crumble. And it's a critical situation that we are in. We're seeing our culture decline and decay. As our culture next month will celebrate Pride Month and other sins that God will say, says will destroy us, we blithely march towards societal collapse and we're completely, for the most part, unaware of it. A woman in our church emailed me this past week and asked me the question, how do I talk to my kids, my young kids, about Pride Month? It used to be a parade, then it was a week and now it's a month. We dedicate one month as a society every year, one twelfth of the year, to what God calls an abomination. And the, if that doesn't scare us as a church into action, there's a problem. But she wrote me a letter and said, how do I talk to my kids? And I said, you know what? Perhaps the best thing to do is not so much talk to them about pride and the homosexual lifestyle, but talk to them about God's design for marriage and model it in your home. Show your kids what God calls a husband and a wife to. Show your kids what real, strong, healthy, godly marriage looks like. God's plan for marriage. So what is God's plan for marriage? What is God's plan for the family? Well, the Bible has got lots to say about it, but this is one of the seminal passages of Scripture that speak about God's design for marriage. And we're going to take some time this morning to work our way through it. Marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. That's what it is. Despite what culture says, two men and two women cannot be married. They can live together, they can cohabit, they can have a sexual relationship, they can call what they have marriage, but it is not marriage. Just calling something something doesn't make it so. I was talking to my father-in-law a couple of days ago about this, and he told me a story about Abraham Lincoln. He was dealing with a particularly recalcitrant congressman. And so he sits down with him one day and he says, look, 
Lincoln says to this congressman, look, how many legs does a cow have? And the guy goes, well, he's got four. And Lincoln says, now, if I, if I call his tail a leg, how many legs now does the cow have? The congressman said, five. And Lincoln says, no, he's only got four. Calling a cow's tail a leg doesn't make it so. And calling gay marriage marriage doesn't make it so. And the reason that we say that is because God created and God defined marriage. As I said, it's a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. It's designed by God to produce kids that live under the security of that relationship and grow up to be godly, well-rounded, secure individuals who become the pillars of the next generation society. So Paul speaks in this passage first to wives and then to husbands. I don't know why ladies have to go first all the time, but anyway, we're going to deal with the women first and then the men. And it's not a hard passage to understand. When you look at the verbs, it's a pretty simple passage to understand. It says this, wives are to submit to and respect their husbands. And husbands are to love their wives, to cleanse and sanctify them, to nourish and cherish them. So our calling in marriage is different. Husband is to love his wife the way Christ loved the church. A wife is to submit to her husband and honor him the way the church submits to and honors Jesus. Our challenges in marriage are different because men and women are fundamentally different. In recent years, egalitarian theologians have tried to say that this passage is just about mutual submission. They take verse 21, which we looked at last week about submitting to one another, and they sort of force that through the rest of the passage as if to say the only thing that Paul's saying from verse 22 to 33 is that we should both have a deferential attitude to one another. And while that's true, we should have a deferential attitude to one another. The verbs that, are called, that, that we are called to live out in each other's lives are profoundly different. Very, very different. To properly understand this passage, it's critical that we understand that Paul ultimately is not talking about marriage. He's talking about the relationship between Jesus and the church, and the church and Jesus, and marriage should be, when it's lived properly, an illustration of that beautiful mystery of the relationship between Christ and his church, and the church and its Savior. And we've got to understand that. He says that in verse 32 of that passage. Marriage is a picture of the church's submission to and obedience to Christ and Christ's unconditional sacrificial love for the church. The wife should pattern her life on the relationship of the church to Jesus as a husband patterns his life on the relationship of Christ to the church. Thus, our callings are fundamentally different in marriage. And to simply say this passage is about mutual submission misses the point and it neuters the teaching of the word of God. You know, in egalitarianism, when, you, when, a, when a young boy looks at you and says, what does it mean to be a man, pastor? You can't answer that question. When a young woman looks at her mom in an egalitarian context and says, what does it mean to be a woman? You can't answer that question. 
But the reality is that God has, dis- God has created us fundamentally distinct. Every single cell in my body and every single cell in my wife's body is different. We are different. We are created differently, and thus, we have fundamentally different needs. And that this passage is based on that premise. So I want to ask you about your marriage. How are you doing? Has your marriage grown cold? Is your relationship struggling? Are you living together but not particularly enjoying it? Has your relationship grown resentful or bitter? Or has anger sort of just given way to apathy and sort of living together alone? Do you think now that you've maybe made a mistake, you married the wrong person? Are you looking for a way out? Wanting to start over with a different person, different spouse? Let me begin by saying two things that I believe are fundamentally true. First, the person that you are married to right now is God's choice for your life. The person that you are married to right now is God's choice for you for the rest of your life. Sorry, hon. It's just the facts. You got to stick with that person. That's the way. That's just, that's just the truth. And secondly... If you follow the teachings of the Word of God, if you get serious about doing what God has called you to do as a husband and wife, recognizing the unique needs of your spouse, and then working to fulfill those needs, your marriage will be better. It may not be perfect, but it will grow. It will move forward, and you'll find so much more fulfillment and joy in your marriage. So, first of all, let's start with the ladies. Ladies first. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as the church submits to Jesus. That's what wives are called to do. So in the Paul Little unauthorized version of this, this passage says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands, not to anybody else's husband, but to your own husband, as you would submit to Jesus. Why? Because your husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And so Paul concludes with this thought. As the church submits to Christ, wives also must submit to their husbands in everything. Now, when you read that passage, particularly to secular women, but sometimes to Christian women too, it just engenders a ton of anger. It looks so draconian, so medieval, so like out of step with culture and out of step with the times. Oftentimes, submission and the idea of submission is seen as being degrading, demeaning, and insulting to women. But before we examine what it really means for a wife to submit to her husband, I want to say two things real quick. First, I know this from personal experience, by the way. Husbands cannot demand and should not demand submission of their wives. It's, it's, submission is a gift that a wife gives to her husband out of love, out of her love for her, him, and all out of her love for Jesus. And so to try to demand that a wife submits, and like I said, I tried it, it does not work, is wrong. It's not our place to demand submission. It is a wife's gift to Christ, and it's a wife's gift to her husband. But secondly, let me say this. Submission is not doormatism. It is not when the husband says, honey, I want you to jump, and the wife says, how high, dear? 
That's not what it is to submit to your husband. It's not servitude, it's not unquestioning obedience, it's not the dominance of a husband over his wife. The word submission is a very common word in the, in the ancient Near East. Uh, it simply means, it's, it's a military term actually, hupatasso, it simply means to line up in order, to line up in rank under. And so a wife's responsibility in her life is to line her life up, to align herself under the leadership and the authority and the direction of her husband. So a wife is to yield to, to follow, to acquiesce to the leadership of her husband in all things, just as the church is to do the same in its relationship with Jesus, her Savior. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife. Again, a simple term, kephale. And it simply means head or chief or leader or one in authority. And the husband is the head of the wife. It's not hard to understand or interpret. He is called to lead. He is called to exercise authority in the marriage. And he is called to give account to God for how he handles himself in that relationship. He is accountable to God for his headship. So what does this look like practically? What does it look like practically? Because on the surface, when you just read those couple of verses, it sure sounds like the husband gets to be king and the wife gets to be servant. The husband gets to say jump and the wife gets to say how high, dear. But I don't believe that's what the scriptures teach. I don't believe that at all. So let me try to explain what I think is going on here. When you go back to Genesis and you read how God created the world, you read the first couple of chapters and it's just like God's creating stuff. And every day he creates stuff and it's good. And he says, it's good and it's good and it's good and it's good. And then on the sixth day, he creates man. And he looks at this poor schlep and he says, for the first time in all of creation, this is not good. This is is not good. It is not good for a man to be alone. And, and, and by the way, this is not kind of like Houston, we've got a problem situation. It didn't surprise God that he created man and he looks at him and he says, this is not good. He was just halfway through the process of creating man when he created Adam. So he looks at the man and he says, this is not good. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I will make him a helper that is a complement to him. And so God made Eve, a partner, a helper, someone who would complement him, someone who would come alongside. God, recognizing Adam's weaknesses and his deficiencies and his frailties, made someone who was perfect for him, someone who would complement him, who would come alongside and make up for his weaknesses. And in doing so, he created man, mankind. And he looked and he said, It's good. It's good. So God created Eve to complement and to complete man. So when Paul says in Romans 11, verse 9, when he says, man was not made for woman or for the sake of woman, but woman was made for the sake of man, this is what he was getting at. He was saying God made woman because man was incomplete on his own. He was inadequate on his own. He needed a helper, someone who would complete him. So what does this look like in marriage? When a woman chooses to marry a man, 
She marries a person with lots and lots of inadequacies, lots and lots of weaknesses, lots and lots of needs. And she makes a choice when she says, I do, to give herself to him. She makes a choice to come alongside of him and say, I will augment what is weak. I will strengthen what is broken or needy. And together, we can make you, husband, far more than you ever would have been on your own. In my mind, that is the first step in submission. When a wife comes along by, beside her husband and she brings all the strengths of her femininity, she brings all the potential, the gifts, the woman's intuition, all of it, and she says unreservedly, I am turning my back on independence and I am now walking down to meet you at the front of the church and I am giving myself to you. 100% of me is now for you because I'm for you. And she completes that guy. And the two become one. And a wise husband, recognizing the gifts and the potential of his wife, defers to her. He recognizes his own weaknesses and says, honey, you're better at this than I am. You have more giftings in this area than I do. And he defers to her in certain areas. He encourages her and he allows her gifts and her potential to thrive and to grow so that she can be all God, that is all God has called her to be. A wife submits as a humble husband recognizes her potential and recognizes his needs. So my wife, Cindy, made a decision on May 14th, 1983, to marry a broken, needy guy. And she walked down the aisle and she made a choice Knowing how broken, how needy, how frail, how inadequate I am, she made a choice to say, I am going to come and I'm going to join myself to this poor guy that God says it's not good for him to be alone, and that's pretty obvious. And I'm going to give him all of my potential, all of my femininity, and together he is going to be a better man. And together we're going to accomplish stuff that we would never have done if we had stayed individuals. And in my mind, That willingness to compliment me is the most beautiful expression of submission that a wife can can make to her husband. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. When she came down the aisle, she not only was willing to say, I'm bringing all of me and giving it to you, but she honored me that day. When she said yes, when she said, I do, she said to me something that really, really, really esteemed, blessed, encouraged me. She said, you're worth it. Of all the guys, of all the guys, I'm choosing you. Of all the guys that I can marry, there's billions of them out there. Of all the guys, I'm walking down the aisle to give myself to you because I admire you. I honor you. I respect you. So not only did she compliment me by bringing her strengths, she also complimented me in what she said that day. She said, you're worth it. She said, I admire you. She said, I esteem you. She said, I value you. I respect you.
It's interesting at the end of this, verse 33, when Paul summarizes his argument, he sort of says the same thing to husbands. He repeats himself. Husbands, love your wives. But he changes the imperative when he speaks to the wives. And he doesn't say submit. What does he say? Respect. It's a word that really means honor. It means affirm. It means esteem. It means communicate value and worth. She complimented me by giving herself to me, by bringing all her strengths, her potential as a woman, and giving herself unreservedly to me. But she also complimented me by saying, you're worth it. I value you. I respect who you are. I honor you today by giving you myself. So as the church submits to Jesus, it obeys. It takes its potential. We're the hands and feet of Christ. And we do on the planet today what Jesus is unable to do because he's in the presence of God in heaven. We complement Christ. But we also worship him. And we compliment him. We did that in the service this morning. There's only, what, 10 of us in the room? But you at home, we sang together and we esteemed and we expressed worth and value to Jesus. We told him what we thought of him. We told him how amazing he is. We thanked him for all he has done for us. We esteemed him and we communicated worth. And that's exactly the responsibility that a wife has, a godly wife has in relationship to her husband. She comes alongside and she brings her potential as a woman and she compliments him. And then she communicates worth to him. So why is this so important? Why is it so critical that a wife does that? Well, a husband's greatest need in marriage is a word that begins with S. And it's not the word you're thinking that I'm thinking right now. A husband's greatest need in marriage is significance. Significance. A man longs to be respected. And I don't think women understand or really appreciate this. This is something that needs to be taught and understood and accepted. A man needs to be respected, to be honored, to be valued by his wife. We live in a world where most husbands go out each day and they are beaten down by society, beaten down by their work, beaten down by circumstances, and they come home beaten up. And every husband needs a cheerleader. Every husband needs somebody who is going to say, I admire you. I'm in your corner. I'm your cheerleader. We need somebody to compliment us, to affirm that we are doing okay. And a godly wife communicates worth to her husband as the church communicates worth to Jesus. A lot of wives, unfortunately, interpret this as the male ego. And it's something that they think initially, well, that's just got to be crushed in him. Isn't that just pride? Women, God created us to desperately need your approval, your approbation, your words of encouragement, words that edify and build up. Pride needs to be crushed, but the male ego needs to be nurtured. Remember when we were kids at school, even before that other S word was important, the sex word was important, and it's important in marriage for sure, but even before we knew about that, 
we were showing off to the girls. Why? Because God has created us men with the need to be seen by that one special woman as being significant, being of value, being of worth. And the way that you communicate that to us is simply by encouraging, by esteeming, by speaking words, positive words, into our hearts. We need to know worth-ship from our wives. Not worship, that's reserved for Jesus. But a wise wife will communicate worth. She will give herself unreservedly to her husband. She will compliment him, come alongside, strengthen him, make up for his deficiencies. And she will give him a sense of worth, a sense of value, a sense of significance that no one else on the planet can do other than that guy's wife. So as wives submit, she communicates this significance. She follows the lead of her husband. She trusts him. She honors him. Not blindly, not against the will of God or the teachings of Scripture, but she lines up under his leadership and she honors him and respects him. What Paul says next is, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now Paul switches from speaking about the church in relationship to Jesus to speaking about Jesus in relationship to the church. And he says this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So a husband is to assume the posture that Jesus took in relationship to the church. And what did Jesus do? He willingly went to the cross. He laid down his life for us. He took our sin upon himself. He took our place. He spilled out his life. His blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. The wrath of God was upon him so that we could know that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Like it's a magnificent transition. It's the gospel. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we have an example that we will never, ever live up to. That's why I said to Cindy on the way to Tim Hortons this morning to get our breakfast, I said, I feel so inadequate preaching on this subject because I know how far short I fall all the time. I can preach online because I, I don't lie. Pretty good at being honest. But this thing here, it's so hard. And I, I, I fail a lot. But that's the standard to which God has called us, men, to follow his example, to lay our lives down for our wives, to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A husband should also sanctify his wife with the word. He should nourish and cherish his wife as Jesus does the church. Jesus died for the church, and today he is cleansing, and he is nourishing, and he is cherishing his bride. And a strong marriage and a strong home is built on the founda that foundation where a husband says, I am willing to give up. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to lay down my priorities and my wants and my needs for the well-being of my wife. And here's the thing. Who did Jesus die for? Did he die for this beautiful bride? He died for a bunch of messed up sinners. And I thought a lot about the, that, that this week. It's so easy to love your wife. 
It's so easy to say when you're standing in front of her in the church and she's got that beautiful dress on and she's just absolutely stunningly beautiful and you're about to get on a plane tomorrow and go to Jamaica, which is what we did. It's easy to say, oh yeah, I love her. But what Jesus did is he loved us at our worst. He loved us at our worst. We're called to love our wives when she is at her worst. And she needs to know when she's at her worst that there is nothing and no one on this planet that takes precedence over her. No other woman, no hobby, no sports, no work, no other interests, no other pursuits. She's got to know that she comes first. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Verse 28, Paul talks about when a husband loves his wife, he loves himself. You see that? And what he's really getting at here is that real Christ-like love is the recognition that a husband, you're no longer independent. You're no longer an individual. You are part of something so much bigger than yourself. You are now one with your wife, and you have been called to leadership in this relationship, in your relationship with your wife and in the relationship with your kids. And you must take that leadership role seriously. Christ-like, sacrificial, selfless, unconditional love is saying, I will take responsibility to cleanse, to nurture, and to cherish you. I will not only lay my life down for you, I will invest my life in you. And spiritual headship is a challenging thing, as you know, but that's what we are called to. Being the pastor, being the spiritual leader in your home. We're called to shepherd, to love our wives. And husbands, if you want to make it easier for your wife to submit to you, let her know that she can trust you. It's so much easier for a wife to trust a godly husband, a husband whom she knows is in living relationship with Jesus. A husband who she knows is taking his direction directly from the person of Jesus Christ, who is in the word, who is pursuing hard after the Lord. If you want to create an environment in which your wife can gladly submit to you, be trustworthy. Show her that you love, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So why is this so important? Why is it so important to love your wife the way Christ loved and loves the church? Well, the greatest, most fundamental need of any wife is not significance, it's security. A wife needs to know that she is absolutely secure in your love. And it's a husband's unconditional love It's your ongoing leadership, your cleansing, your nurturing, your cherishing of her that causes a wife to know security. Your unconditional love, husband, wraps your wife in a cocoon of security. And I think as we do that, we we meet her at her greatest point of need. So there's sort of like the theology. What do we do with this? How How do we make this practical?
The problem with marriage, and Christian marriage is, is, is not exempt from this, the problem in marriages is that we don't experience this the way that we should. Husbands don't feel significant. Wives don't feel secure. Many wives feel unloved and as a consequence feel profoundly insecure in their relationship. Many husbands feel disrespected and abandoned and feel profoundly insignificant, undervalued in the relationship. And here's the thing. I hinted at this later on, but I believe it's true. There is no one on the planet that can minister to you the way that you need to be ministered to other than your husband or your wife. So after the service, I'm sure a lot of people in this room are going to sort of do the appropriate thing and go, hey, pastor, great sermon. And I appreciate that. I may or may not believe it. But on the way home in the car, if Cindy doesn't say anything, it's going to kill me. My heart will be ripped out. So don't do that. But when she says, even after everybody else has said, but when she said, that was good this morning, hon, that's all it takes. I am just like that kid in the schoolyard, five years old, and that little girl in pigtails is looking at me and admiring me. It just does something to my soul that no other person on the planet can do. Because Cindy, my wife, has the key to my heart as I have the key to hers. And she can go in and unlock my heart and touch me at the deepest point of need, as I can do in her heart. And that's why God has created us differently with different needs and different potential. Because only you can give to your spouse what they desperately need. When marriages die, or when they become cold and distant and dispassionate, the process is generally this. A husband will abdicate his role to be the loving servant leader in the home. He will abdicate his role to laying down his life. He will abdicate his role as the spiritual pastor, shepherd, servant leader in the home. He will abdicate his role of being Jesus to his wife. And a wife in that place of insecurity will begin to look for ways to take charge. She will usurp his position. I've been in ministry for a, lot, a long time, and I've seen it happen over and over and over again. The names may change, the circumstances may change, but fundamentally what happens in a marriage is that a husband abdicates his responsibility to shepherding and lovingly, sacrificially leading his, his wife, and a wife in the place of that insecurity that is created in her heart will usurp the position that God has rightly, rightfully given to the husband, which the husband has abandoned. The sin of the husband is almost always abdication. And the sin of the wife is almost always usurpation. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. It's exactly what happened between Adam and Eve. That's why their marriage ultimately was, was cursed by sin. Think about what happened. We don't have time to turn back to Genesis chapter 3, but think about what happened. Eve was being tempted by Satan. Where was Adam? He was right there. 
He was abdicating his responsibility. He didn't intervene. He didn't lovingly lead in that situation. He stepped aside. He abdicated and he watched. He was pathetic. And Satan tempted Eve. And in in the situation she was in, the Bible tells us that she was uh, blinded, didn't have clear clarity of what was going on, whereas Adam did. That's why Adam is blamed for the sin, not Eve. And she fell into sin. She stepped out from underneath the position of, underneath the authority that, that Adam had in her life. She usurped his position of leadership. And she, she ate the apple. Or whatever it was. Pomegranate. You pick. Fruit. And what does she do? She gives it to him. What does he do? He eats it. He follows meekly, pathetically, having completely abdicated the role that God has given to him. The roles were reversed. It was turned on its head. What God had designed and what happened were two different things. And that's what happens in marriages today. We turn our back on what God has designed for us, and we think we can do something else, and it's going to work, and it never does. It never does. Adam abdicated his role of loving headship. He just stood there. Eve abdicated her role of submission, of following, and she took the leadership. She was motivated, I think, by sin as Adam was motivated by sin. It was an attitude. It was a heart disposition. God didn't curse the ground, didn't curse them. God didn't cast them out until they actually did it. As my point is this, there is an inclination within all of us. Every single man, because of Adam, is wired to abdicate, to turn his back, to walk away, to get invested in his work, get invested in something else where he can find significance and value and worth. Every single woman, because of her insecurity, is wired to usurp, to take control. And we've got to resist it. We've got to resist it if we're going to have strong marriages. Sin does to our marriages today what it did to Adam and Eve's marriage thousands of years ago. We've got to make different choices. We've got to recognize that God has spoken. And husbands, you have a responsibility to lay your life down for your wife. You have a responsibility to cleanse her, to sanctify her, to nurture her, and to cherish her. To make her your number one priority. And wives, your responsibility to submit to, line up under your husband Come alongside and give him yourself, all of your potential, and communicate worth and value to him. If you will do that in your relationships, wives will feel a sense of deep security. You will wrap your wife in a warm cocoon, a warm blanket of security, which is the deepest need of her heart. And husbands and wives, you will give your husband that sense of value, that sense of worth, that sense of significance that God has created within him to have fulfilled by his wife. 
His wives submit to and compliment and compliment. There's one little E or an I in those two words. Their husbands, they will meet their husband at the deepest place of need. And as husbands love, cherish, lay down their lives for their wives, they will meet their wives at their deepest point of need. So one final thought. You say, Paul, that's all well and good, but my husband's not a Christian. My wife's not a Christian. They don't understand this. What am I supposed to do? He's selfish. She is disrespectful. How do I handle this? Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. In this passage of Scripture, Paul speaks specifically to wives, but it's applicable both directions, husbands or wives. And look at what he says in verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband, or be submissive to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And he goes on later on and talk about a submissive attitude. So what Peter says in this passage of Scripture, and what God is saying to wives, is even if you have a husband who isn't living like Jesus in a relationship to the church in your life, be the church. Be submissive. Honor him. Give him your all. And by implication... The principle is the same. Husbands, if you have a wife who isn't honoring you, who isn't loving you the way that you need to be loved, who isn't respecting you and submitting to you, what do you do? You love her the way Jesus loved the church. You lay your life down for her. And the point that Peter's making here is that by living the gospel, there is a wonderful potential that that husband, that wife, can see in your life the truth of the gospel, and be saved, be transformed. You see, living this out in our homes, in front of our kids, is the antidote to the crumbling that we see going on in our society today. We don't need to take placards and get down to Queens Park and protest gay marriage. That's that's going to accomplish nothing. What changes a society is one heart at a time being transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. And how, do we, how does that happen? It's through the gospel. It says we proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that lives are transformed. So how do you do that? You live it in your marriage. Live the gospel. Because this marriage is a picture. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and his loving relationship with the church. So live this out. It's hard. But by the Spirit of God, by His grace and His enabling power, you can do it. And your marriage will be better. And the impact that you're going to have on your kids, on your neighbors, on, your, on the society in general will be profound. So let's pray together. Lord, it's true that we can muddle through, through marriage. Uh, we can survive But Lord, our desire is to thrive. Our desire is to have fulfilling, joy-filled, peaceful marriages that bring honor and glory to you in that they reflect the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Father, for us. I pray for myself that, Lord, as husbands, you would allow us to grow 
in following your example of selflessness and love, that we would lay our lives down for the woman that you have given to us, that we would nurture and treasure her, and that wives would recognize their responsibility to submit to and to honor their husbands, to follow their lead, so that together, Lord, we can reflect the truth of the gospel of Christ to our world who is so lost and so confused and so much in need of the gospel. So let us speak the gospel, but let us live the gospel in our homes, particularly in front of our kids, I pray. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would revive us, revive our marriages, revive our homes, revive our church, Lord, and revive this area. We pray all this for your honor and for your glory. Amen.